Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. I'm your host, the Nefriesian. First off, I want to thank you guys so much for being part of helping to grow the Bootstraps platform. And if you want to continue helping us grow more, please go on over to Instagram and give us a follow at Bootstraps Podcast. And also be sure to share this episode around with your friends. So today I have a great episode for you all featuring Dan Runcy, the founder of Trapital. Trapital is a new media company that's part blog, part podcast, part consultancy, and um, that focuses on the business of hip hop and really how a lot of great business cases can be learned from the strategies deployed by hip hop moguls of the like of Jay-Z and um, Kendrick Lamar and J. Cole, etc. And these these business strategies and cases are on par with those that we've studied in business schools, you know, from Harvard Business Review, etc. And what's really interesting is how Dan Runcy has been able to take these insights and turn it into a whole business in and of itself. So I think it's going to be a really great episode for you all. I'm not going to belabor the point. Let's get into it. Peace, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. Brother, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? What's up, bro? My name is Dan Runcy, and I'm the founder of Trapital, which is a media company that covers the business of hip hop. The business of hip hop. So what is it exactly that Trapital does in terms of like covering the business of hip hop? And who is who's your primary audience that you're developing this content for? Yeah, Trapital has really started to elevate the discussion and to elevate hip hop culture. And there were just so many instances growing up, someone like me, I'm a lifelong hip hop fan, had heard the stories and seen all of the tales and the business accomplishments that hip hop artists had made time and time again, especially in the most recent years, as many of them have become millionaires and billionaires right up there with other people in other industries. But if you look at the strategic insights and the breakdowns that those figures and in other industries were getting, it was so much more than what you would see from the folks that were in hip hop. And it was a frustration point. There was something that I wanted to see different. And I actually started to do a lot of this on my own on the side. Uh, shortly after I'd graduated from business school, this is 2014, I'd started writing on the side, mostly as a hobby, start on my own medium page and was putting a few different articles out talking about the business of hip hop, was talking about the business of music more broadly and sports, things related to black culture. But then I started to realize that hip hop really was an opportunity to focus more on this. And I'd done a few different things for different publications, ones like Wired, Complex. And while it was good to get the bylines in there, I still didn't feel like it was making a true impact. It felt a bit more transactional. And I said to myself, if I really wanted to see those types of insights seen and broken down on a regular basis, this needs to be something that's created. I needed to build the type of company that I wish existed. And just given the resources and the timing of things, it was a good opportunity to be able to use the skills and the interest I had to build it out. And I started Trapital three years ago and have been building and 
making the steps along the way ever since. So it's been good, man. I mean, it's been um, now it's a newsletter that goes out to, you know, thousands of readers and executives. You asked about the audience. Most of these folks are the people who are the decision makers in the business of hip hop. So the folks that are working in music, media and entertainment. It's also a podcast, too, that has been able to interview many of these leading executives themselves. So you know, we're still in the early days, but I'm excited and, exp- and inspired by what's ahead. That's what's up. So there's there's like seven questions running through my head right now, but I'm going to ask you this. So you said you've been able to interview several leaders, you know, within the within the hip hop space. Tell me, you know, one or two that you, you found to be, um, I don't want to say the most compelling, because I'm sure they're all compelling on some level, but which ones kind of popped to the top as that were... Uh, really inspiring conversations that you were able to have. A few months back, this was in January, I interviewed Master P. Mm. And it was a good conversation because it was someone that I'd written about in the past, someone that I had studied and followed his moves of how he built his business for decades now. So having that opportunity to be able to talk at the same level was great to have that chance for an hour. But more specifically, it stuck out to me how willing he was to be patient with the type of businesses that he wanted to build Mm. one and two how he really was willing to do things that a lot of people just wouldn't be willing to do so to give you an example he was willing to sit down with michael jackson's attorney and pay twenty five thousand dollars for that meeting so that he could get insights on just how he needed to build his business how Mm. he needed to structure things and that's the type of thing that you don't necessarily hear a lot of people doing. It's something you would hear someone put out there and the other person almost scoff at to be like, I am not paying $25,000 to go sit across from another, you know, grown adult right. at the table to get insights from them. But I think that's the type of person that Master P is. He's someone that understands that there's a lot that needs to be done in order to get to the levels. He understands that this is a game that isn't necessarily won by making moves overnight. And he's someone that, yeah, even though he hasn't hit those billionaire statuses of like a Jay-Z or a Kanye West, he's still building things his way. He wants to be able to have a bit more ownership and control and has taken the trade-offs that come with that. And not only did it validate a lot of what I had studied and understood about what he's built his business, but it took it to another level to be like, no, like, I mean, you knew he was really about it, but it validated everything else, right? (laughs) He really about it. I like that turn of phrase, but I think that's, I think that's super real too. When you look at, you pull back at a macro level and I don't even know how many episodes in which I've said this and how many more, which I'm going to say it again in the future, but business is about creating and capturing value. You have to be able to do both. And I think as black folks, we are really great at creating value, especially in the entertainment space. I mean, we create value in other spaces as well. But if you think about historically as musicians, as actors, comedians, we create a whole lot of value. And the first thing I heard in that $25,000 investment that Master P made to sit down with Michael Jackson's attorney, in the entertainment content, like IP space, the way in which you capture values through the legal contracts. Mm-hmm. And so him being, whether just his natural genius or if someone else had like pulled his card and kind of put him on it, I don't know where he got that keen insight to even know that that was the right move to make. It was such a brilliant move to make because that is how 
you capture value in the music and IP space is through the legal contracts. And that's mm-hmm. where you go back again and again, I mean, even recently, like Chappelle talking about the contract he signed early on with Comedy Central or whoever their parent company is and how that contract inherently was flawed in a long term because right. he didn't understand like the, the ramifications of it. So he signed his contract when he was in his 20s or however old he was. And then you fast forward and he realizes it's such a bad contract. So anyways, create value, capture value in the content space. It's actually the legal contracts where you lay out the rights and who gets to monetize what. And so I think it was so smart, like $25,000 investment. I mean, how many multiples above that has he made back in profit oh, from yeah. that one meeting? I know, right? And it's one of those things like he didn't even have a lot of money back then when he was making that. This was around the same time that he was offered a record label deal for a million dollars and he just didn't have the money at all to even have collateral or like leverage himself to be able to be like, no, I'm doing this. I'm doing this my way, but he still turned it down because he had the conviction and grit to be like, no, I'm going to build this thing from the ground up. I'm not going to do that deal. So that still takes, I think, a pretty strong level of patience to be like, no, a million dollars is a life changing sum of money right now. So that's almost the opposite side of that. The same person that's willing to pay 25K to sit down with Michael Jackson's attorney when they have no money is the same person that's willing to turn down an a million dollar check when they have no money. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's smart. And it, I remember hearing him say in an interview, you know, if, if they're willing to pay me a million dollars, how much more are they going to be able to make off of me? Right. right. And understanding the way in which capital works, right. Yep. Whatever someone invests, they're expecting a return. Right. So people don't give you something for nothing. Right? right. And like fast forward that, that makes me think of something that Cardi B had said recently. She had just done this interview with XXL and she's talking about all of the offers that she's getting a lot of them being brand opportunities and stuff like that. And she's like, well, I'm getting two, three, five, $10 million checks, but most of the time it's a flat fee. And she's like, well, I want to be involved with that bigger number. What is that number? That's the same exact thing that you're talking about with Master P, right? So I think we're starting to see a few more of these deals start to happen where artists are getting a bit more leverage. They're getting some type of royalty or revenue share. Anyone that's followed Kanye West story, that's obviously how he was able to get the money for Yeezy. It's a cut from everything that Adidas has sold. And I do think that in general, if you're trying to leverage your brand, those are the ways to be able to do stuff like that. But still, I do think it's going to be tough over time for everyone to be able to do that because I just don't know if everyone is necessarily built that way. Yeah, I mean, and that's where the market will correct itself, right? Where people who have the the value i think will get compensated and because again you got to create value so if if partnering with you fill in the blank brand actually creates value Mm -hmm. they will partner with you right right and then you just got to know how to go ahead and capture so tell me tell me a little bit more actually because i've i have i mean i know about the kanye west thing at a high level but i know that this is actually your business you do this all day every day and really break these things down i have you know, I've given Kanye his, I've given him his 50 feet. Not like he actually knows me or will ever give a damn about me personally, but emotionally I've, you know, distanced myself from him and haven't really followed him closely because of what he's done, in my opinion, to violate our culture. But that said, I do know there's a big headline that's out there that he has made all of this money from this deal with Adidas. So how, how was that deal 
structured? And what's the, yeah, what have you been able to figure out? Like what was the business behind it? What was the strategy behind it? Yeah. So to be honest with you, that deal has been a bit of a black box. They've been able to get some details from it, but for the most part, based on what we've seen out there, he has gotten a 11% royalty cut of all sales of Adidas Yeezy products. So those are all the sneakers from the drops and everything like that. So he's been the first to go brag about, oh, I got a bigger cut than Michael Jordan got for Jordan brand. Cause I believe right. the Jordan brand deal, Jordan gets 5% of the brand. And the difference is that Nike owns that brand. Jordan actually doesn't own, you know, Jordan brand, but Adidas own, or rather, Kanye West owns 100% of the Yeezy Inc. brand. He licensed that to Adidas to create the shoes, so he's able to benefit from their distribution. And yeah, he gets 11% of the sales from that. So if Adidas is selling, you know, a billion dollars worth of Yeezys in a year, then Kanye's getting, you know, $110 million. Right. Makes perfect sense. So I mean, at a high level, there are there are two types of deals. You can get paid off of the top line, which is a rev share, which sounds like what Yeezy's doing. He's licensing it out and then getting a rev share back off of the top line. Or you could take an equity stake in which, you know, you get paid on the profit on the bottom line, what what kind of comes through. And I don't know. I think that I think that that's a if you're a personality, I think a rev share off the top line is such a natural way in which to partner, right? You you don't have to wait through to the bottom line. There's a lot of cost that can get stuffed into overhead that can eat away at that profit on paper, right? You could make it look like, you know, you're not a very profitable business, which means the actual cash you get to take out if you take an equity stake is going to be pretty low or you just have to wait till there's a big sell-off. Or, But if, you, if you're a personality like Kanye and you take the money off the top line, so for every you know, hundred dollars sold, you get eleven dollars. I mean, I can I now see why, you know, his net worth is being uh estimated at well over a billion dollars. I think he broke was it two? This is a pretty high number I heard out there. Yeah, so that that's been the that's been another whole another thing that's been a debate too, because he had quoted some number that put him at like six to eight billion, which would put him as, you right. know, the richest black man in America or whatever it is. Those right, lines right. obviously got quickly refuted by people being like, no. Let's go back and check the numbers a little bit. And I do think that he's probably in, he's probably closer to two to $3 million. That would be my guess. A majority. I mean, billion? Billion. Yeah. Two to three yeah, billion. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. A majority of that, of course, is Yeezy, but he also still has a good amount from his music and real estate and some of the other um, investments that he's done and that ranch that he has in um, Wyoming. I think it's Cody, Wyoming, where yeah. he has the ranch. So, so yeah, so that's where a majority of it's come from. But yeah, to your to your point about the type of deal structures, I do think that if you're working with an established brand like uh, Nike or a Adidas or whoever it is, I think the top line just makes a lot more sense because yeah, you don't want to get into that get into those like net income numbers or get into that profit number because there's so many things that could be taken off the top that you may really be left with nothing. This goes back to the whole reading of the contracts, making sure everything is set, right? I think the equity deals make more sense if there really is truly some upside with the company. And yes, I think there's a case to be made that Adidas has clearly had upside in the past decade, just given how much they've been able to grow with Ultra Boost and Kanye and how much they've, as a brand of leverage hip hop culture. 
But I think the equity deals just make the most sense for those pre-IPO companies that really have the opportunity to pop, right? So yeah. you just look at the, the, the success that Nas has had. He's participated in the most angel rounds of any celebrity in the past decade from 2010 to 2019. He's at the top of that list, higher than Ashton Kutcher, Will Smith, and all these other people that are prolific investors. And he arguably just had the biggest payday he's had from an investment with what he put in Coinbase. He wasn't actively working mm -hmm. with the company, but I think a lot of the association that he was able to have with the Andreessen Horowitz gave him good access to deal flow and all of that just extended there. And given the rise and the popularity of cryptocurrency trading recently, I think it's worked out pretty well for him. Anyone that listens to um, <laughs> DJ Khaled just heard that bar that he had in um, Sorry Not Sorry, where he called himself Cryptocurrency Scarface. I'm still not sure right. how I feel about that line. I'll be honest with you, but <laughs> it is what it is. I, I, I got to give him credit. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, definitely, I definitely caught that bar. And I was like, okay, I feel it. I feel it. You know, it's... Uh, it's I think it's it's brilliant to be able to diversify as well, right? Because the, the hardest thing to do in capitalism is to get that first million or that first chunk of seed capital. That's why the, the old phrase goes, you know, behind every great fortune is a great crime. Because it is so hard to get that disposable income, right? Because you're caught up paying your bills, whatever, whatever, you just live and grinding like nine to five with your paycheck. But if you do come across something where you, you're a Nas and you get into the rap game and you make some money, you now you got a little wad of money to invest in some things to diversify your understanding of the economy and figure out how can you then take this money you have and instead of buying a bunch of gold chains and cars and being broke in five years, turn that 1 million into two and then two to five, five to 10, then you start getting this exponential growth, which we've seen a few people be able to do from Nas, Jay, Dre, Cube to a degree. There's been a, there's been a few others who are out there who have been able to, Master P, where we started off at, they've been able to take their initial uh, wealth. I mean, even Rihanna, right? Like, take it beyond music and put it into something that's an actual viable business. And then you start to get that multiplier effect, which is the name of the game. Have your money, capitalism, have your capital work for you. Right. Yeah. I think with those artists and just with this industry more broadly, things are really designed that you're not going to realize your true potential to monetize and build what you're doing unless you're building something beyond what you created in music. Because I think music is one of those things where even if you are succeeding at the highest levels and you are maximizing everything through touring and merchandise and music sales, because of the fame and the credibility and the fan base that you've built, there are likely going to be other things that are better opportunity cost of your time to be able to continue to do later on. And I think that's why so many artists have so many other business interests because they realize that as well. Music ends up being the launch pad to be able to making money through other things. And in that way, it's not that different from what you may see in professional sports where most of the superstars at most of these sports teams aren't making their market value, whether it's because of salary caps or other things. So that's why when you see them making money from all these deals 
and all of that, they're making more from that than they are from the game. Whether it's LeBron or Steph Curry or Kevin Durant, the money that they're making from basketball is much less than 50% of what they're actually earning from everything overall because of the sports salary cap. And I think music is similar in that type of way because even if you are succeeding at the highest levels, making all of the money you can from music and touring, you can make more money by building and doing those other things. It still takes hard work. That's why I think what Rihanna's been able to create and others still put them in rare um, categories because it's not easy to do. But if you do it well, you most likely will make more money from that than what you initially became famous for. Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. And the thing that I find so impressive about Trapital and the business that you've built is how you've been able to marry this, you know, you went and got this world-class education at the University of Michigan, getting your MBA. And then you come out and you take that education to start a newsletter, but then eventually build that into thriving business. And so like, around hip hop, right? And the insights and the business lessons from hip hop. And I remember, you know, the, the it's a kind of an open secret, you know, Dan and I've been friends for a while. So I remember wondering like, is he going to run out of things to write about? And at this point, it's a very clear no. Like you can't write about all the things that are happening. There's so much that's happening, but you always have all this fresh new content. So what the question that's in this ramble that I'm having right now is how did you go from being this like brilliant classically trained MBA to being the founder of Trapital? Like when did you get the idea for Trapital? When did you recognize that like hip hop is a perfect filter through which to teach some of the most complex and most valuable business lessons? Like, what was that journey like for you? Yeah, it was an interesting one because, as you know, I entered business school not with the mindset of, oh, yeah, the reason I'm here in business school is because I want to go start this newsletter-based media company to go do XYZ. That was not the mindset. I came in with this thought of, oh, you know, I want to transition into these companies that can save the world and make the and make, you know, things a better place through social impact and doing that with a combination of tech and other skills. And when I had moved out to the um, Bay Area after school, that was still very much the main focus. I'd gotten a job at a, um, a, a venture philanthropy firm, um, was a post-graduation internship, did that for a few months. And then after that was working for a um, ed tech organization. And I thought that was very much gonna be the career path. And writing was really something that I was more so just doing on the side, but still didn't really consider it a full-time thing. I remember being inspired while I was in business school um, by this case study that was written about Beyonce and the surprise album drop that she had done. This was a Harvard business school case study. And I was like, oh, wow, there should be more stuff like this. So I kept that in the back of my mind. And that's when I started to do this stuff on Medium. And things were still going fine from my own career perspective. I very much thought that was going to be the path but honestly, I think over time, just seeing the recognition and the impact that the writing was having almost as this side thing I was doing for fun and enough people that I believe to give me honest advice were saying things like, hey, you should consider doing this full time. I know your full day-to-day -day job is going well, but you should consider this at some point. 
And it just still didn't crystallize to me at that particular moment, but I stuck with it because it was just thinking through what this would look like, right? Because I didn't necessarily want to just be a writer working for a publication. I didn't feel like that was the right move with this. But then over time, I had just done a little bit more research, not even in the business of hip hop, but more broadly with digital media and how things were running how newsletters work, who are the people that are creating companies with this and realizing that there was an opportunity to have a focused niche that you could have a topic on. And then through that, using both newsletters and my own network and resources, you can find the right people in the target audience for what you're doing if you're putting out good content. Good content will reach the right people. And when I started to realize that, I said, okay, there's something here. And this was in 2017. I started to formalize the thoughts a bit more. And then by the end of 2017, I was starting to talk to a few people that I'd done freelance writing for in the past to be like, hey, I'm thinking about launching this thing. I don't know what newsletters are like, or I don't know what this is like, but how do you think this could work? And, you know, I definitely got some mixed opinions, but I think that the the mixed opinions, though, were less about me, just more about the market and the opportunity for this. And for context, this was before email newsletters have become the kind of invoke thing that they've become in the past year or so. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm still willing to try it out. I have a full-time job. Let's see where this goes. So I had started Trapital in spring of 2018. It was a side project. I had this vision of just writing a few case studies about some things in hip hop that I thought were interesting. Wrote a few of them, got some feedback from friends and family. And then around the fifth one I wrote, it was about two and a half months in, I wrote an essay about J. Cole and how he had gone on this tour a few years back called his Dollar and a Dream Tour. And he was able to use that to go back to his roots and build up his fan base by just performing all of his old stuff. People didn't want to hear J. Cole try to be commercial. They wanted to hear Mixtape Cole and all the things that he was doing there. And there was this analogy of how he was doing that to this concept of people being able to find their a thousand true fans. And it was from this 2008 essay that was written about this concept where if you have a thousand fans that are supporting your work and paying you a hundred dollars a year, that's six figures. And if you can find those people through the power of the internet and all across the world, that's enough people to support you building your business and doing what you want to do. And the argument of that essay was that J. Cole has these people and more in different cities across the world because he proved that because he had these small venue concerts with just a thousand fifteen hundred people and the thing was packed they had lines out the door and even the people that weren't there still remember him for it that essay blew up it went viral and at that point i said okay there's something here so i really thought about why that essay resonated with people and then it started to shift the dynamic of how i created something like and what Trapple could be serving that audience and going from there. And I think things then, since then, things have slowly just started to grow and grow. So that was the real thought behind it. And that's how I got to the point. And yeah, I think a lot of ways, something I've talked about a lot, people have asked me is, did, did business school or did the stuff I do there prepare me to do the work that I'm doing with Trapital? And the answer I always give them is that it's a mix because it's, It helped me in the sense that so much of business school is spent breaking down and talking through 
case studies and having those types of discussions about whether you're going through your strategic frameworks about what this company could have done differently, whether it's what Southwest Airlines did when they grew, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, or what Disney did when they were transferring CEOs, all that stuff. What if we had those same type of discussions about what death row could have done to avoid, you know, the breakup between everyone that broke up there or you look back at like NWA, what could have happened if, you know, they got things right with Jerry Heller or whoever they did, we could have those same conversations. <laughs> and I knew that just having that mindset, so much of what I learned in business school was helpful from that perspective. But I think on the flip side, building things in digital media and all of that, a lot of that ended up having to be learned on the job just because so much of it was new. It was a different way of just understanding and using the internet in a way that I didn't necessarily before. So it's definitely been a challenge, but I think it's one that I've enjoyed because this is why you do challenging and inspiring work, right? You know that there's going to be obstacles yep. that are there. You don't always, uh, you're not always prepared for, but you at least trust yourself and your instincts to be able to figure things out. And if not, you know, the people you can reach out to that can help you. Yeah. There, I mean, there's a lot in there. I think a, a couple of things that I will uh, pull out is, you know, I always tell people business school is not going to teach you some magic formula. So it's not about the, it's not as much about the, the like functional expertise skills, right? It's like, it's, if it's finance, it's not going to be, you're not going to go learn exactly how to put together the best, like pivot table financial model ever. Like that's not really what its point is. Um, if it's marketing, you're not going to learn how to create the single best advertising campaign or marketing strategy ever, but you are going to learn how to think. And that's what business school gives you is, uh, uh, can you, uh, it, it'll, it'll help teach you, uh, how to think through stuff and how to break complex situations down. So, you say that there, like, there's a mix that happened for you. I can, I can see that, you know, playing out. And because even when I think about now, like the situation that I'm in, business school has been hyper valuable to my development as a marketing executive. But it's all about big picture framework thinking and how to like diagnose problems and break things down, as opposed to, yeah, it taught me, you know, the step by step process of how to launch a new product in the market. Like that's not really what it does. The other thing that popped out in what you said was the amount of work that you put into it. Someone could come along now, and I think this happens a lot, see Trapital, see Trapital's social media following, look at Trapital's social media posts, and then try and replicate those posts. And it's like, why am I not getting the same like traction or the engagement? Why is my following not growing? But there was all this work that you did to identify those 1,000 fans, right? And it, it wasn't overnight. It wasn't even over three months. It was over several years. And once you identified them and you developed some hypotheses about what they want, delivered it, and it's like, oh, we know the second post is successful. It's not just this one viral post about J. Cole. This other article I've produced now has gotten similar engagement. And now there's this other one and this other one, like, all right, now you've, you've figured something out and that then can be scaled. I think that amount of like hard work and investment, the pivoting, the trying something out, 
having it kind of work, not really, how do I make it better? All of that, that iterative process, I think is what's so, basically, if you want to be an entrepreneur and you don't have that in you, you should come in and play a different role. You maybe shouldn't be the founder. You should be someone to come help it, help the business grow when someone else figures it out. But if you're going to be the engine or part of the founding team that's building the company from the ground up, you have to be comfortable with the iterative process. I agree. I think that was the biggest lesson with this and it was something that I knew was going to be like that coming into it. And I do think it's probably been one of the more rewarding, but self-realizing aspects of it. One of the things I always say in the beginning is that you got to be comfortable shouting into the void, especially into the early days, because <laughs> to your point, someone can see the things that I'm posting, whether it's on Twitter or see the things I'm saying and be like, oh, well, he's getting that response from so-and-so that's a big name person. If I put the same thing out, I could too. And it's like, well, you know, that's not necessarily the case just because I do think that there's so many things that happen behind the scenes that people don't know, right? It is the how can I have my feedback loops as tight as possible so that I can get those insights so that I can understand what's working and what's not working. So for instance, like with that J. Cole piece, things weren't necessarily set up in that type of way just because it was early. So it was purely based on inference, right? I'm getting a feel because I'm getting tagged in this and I'm seeing it pop up in different places. That's more qualitative than quantitative. However, I've started to include surveys at the end of all of my newsletters and try to ask for those particular type of things, whether it's in podcasts or things like that. So when I'm able to get those kind of insights there, not only can I get, in a sense, Trapital's NPS score to understand where things are, but I can also see, okay, what works, what doesn't, and then how can I aggregate those results and move those into what makes, into what's, what helps. The other part of that too is thinking a bit more deeply into the journey of why am I putting this post out? Why am I putting these insights out? Because I think in the early days, you're trying and you're just kind of like spraying to put content out there to be like, okay, well, if I am putting a post out there that's relevant to the business of hip hop, I'm just informing the audience. But that's just one step of it. You have to think, what is the end goal? And I think this gets to the monetization point of what I'm doing. Everything has to tie back to that at some point. So for my business, I am selling ads through the newsletter. I am offering consulting services to select companies. And I'm also an advisor to startups and things like that. So what are the pieces of content that I am creating at all different areas of the funnel? And how does that help one of those key areas? So mm -hmm. if I'm selling ads on the newsletter, then the certain number of people that are reading the newsletter on a regular basis and the engagement, that needs to be high, right? So what are the type of things that I'm just putting out there from a regular basis? But then deeply, if I know that I am trying to attract people who are music industry executives, and some of those could end up being potential clients to work with on a particular consulting project if they have me working with them on something, what is the type of content that I need to have in the newsletter? And then more broadly, what is the type of content I need to have on social media in order to help engage them? So it's that, it's all the customer mapping to just understand, okay, who is this person? What are the types of things that they read and write and see? How can I match some of right. that or see what makes sense? And a lot of that is an ongoing process. So it's definitely a, it's, it's a good amount of work, but I do think that this is kind of what needs to be done in order to really find that product market fit. This is a product yeah. and 
these are the people I'm trying to serve and I want to make sure that it's aligning in the best way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to break it down, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play something back to you and tell me if you agree with it or not, but it's almost like Trapital is a brand and it has three different products or services that it sells, right? It, it has its, um, it has its newsletter, it has its consulting services and it has its advisory. Those are kind of the three different products and therefore you develop content that services one of those three products ultimately mm -hmm. would, 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 would that be accurate yeah that's accurate because i mean at the end of the day as much as it is a service i am trying to offer value at each stage but offering value in a way that brings people down through that funnel and i think mm -hmm. you only get that if you are giving value but giving value that's relevant right so it's yep. not like every post i'm out there is being like hey, who needs consulting services, right? right? Hey, who wants me to be an advisor? Because then it's like, who the hell are you, right? But right. by putting the posts out there, so so this is, so I guess this could be an interesting breakdown, right? So by providing my insights on somewhere like Twitter or LinkedIn, that thing gives people an awareness to be like, okay, I see this thing was shared, it was retweeted. This is an interesting insight, interesting. They see another thing that pops up another few days. Oh, it's that same person that said now, like yesterday, they said something about Drake and his investments. Today, he's saying something about live music coming back. Okay, let me go click on the profile. Let me see what else they have to say. Okay, this sounds like something I could learn from, or this sounds like even if I don't agree with everything, there's some insights here. Let me follow this person. A week later, they see me post something that says, okay, subscribe to the newsletter. And then they get that, they get the newsletter. The insights are even more polished there. So they're getting something. So then the thought right. isn't even like, oh, he wants me to pay him for his consulting services. It's like, this person has something that is interesting to me that could help right. me with my business and help me grow. How could I work with this person? So it's providing that value upfront, but it's being clear about like what I'm writing about and what I'm putting out there to provide that value upfront. And then you join my email list after a few series, you hear me say something about the podcast. And then it's like, oh, he has talked to Steve Stout. He's talked to Jason Jeter. He has had Master P or whoever else on his podcast. Okay, so he is very much ingrained with this and has the brand built and, and has established the brand to back up these things. Okay, let's see if we can work with him in some type of way. And yep. that process has been good for being able to help create that and, and, and create those funnels to come into those types of things because each of those three areas it's attracted each of those, whether it's people that want to advertise through the newsletter, it's people that want me to consult on projects or startups that want me to come on as an advisor in some type of way. The deal, the, the flow that comes in from each of those has been good. I mean, I obviously can't do all of those. And I think just because of the stage I am in the business, it's still very much in continued growth mode because there's just more that comes with that. But it's been good. I think this is the process that works for a lot of people. It's it's the funnel. One of the most um, more widely read things that I've done was creating this funnel about Beyonce and where everyone lines up <laughs> on the beehive. And in a lot of ways, the, that type of analysis becomes uh, very relevant for the kind of business that I'm running too, right? The bottom of my funnel are the three services I mentioned, the consulting, the ads, and the, um, and, 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 and the advisory services to startups. But above yeah. that is where the, um, 
the newsletter and the podcast is because then I have that direct relationship and access to be able to be the voice that they're hearing as they're going through their commutes or doing their thing or be the person that's a regular guest in their inbox. But then at the top of that, it's creating the awareness for them through social media and having them learn a bit more about me. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I laugh when you mentioned the, the Beyonce like beehive funnel because I've always known that you were gifted since since we met. Like I remember our first conversation in a winter garden back in Ann Arbor. Thanks, like, bro. This is a really smart dude. That was almost so, 10 years ago. You know that? <laughs> Man, time flies. You know what I mean? <laughs> that, yeah, no, it is crazy. It has been. That was almost a decade ago. Yeah. yeah we were sitting right out in front of a seagull. But, you know, having known how brilliant you were since I met you, I remember when you posted that beehive funnel and it's made it into several of my like corporate decks. Like mm -hmm. I've used that model because it was, it, it took content creation and this whole like era of original content. Um, it took it and it explained it in a way around this like truly iconic figure. And it just made it so clear in terms of how, she was using content and being able to use it strategically to drive her business, right? And to drive her global brand to be like the beyond superstar, the true icon and like force of nature that she is. But it was so, to me, it was just so deep, like the level of insight around it. That's when I was like, okay, like, yes, he is brilliant, but he has completely figured something out. That is a thing that's here to stay. You know, that was, that was my aha moment around Trapital. And so, Super proud to see it where it is, and how would you how would you describe like where you're at in the journey? I know you said you're still in like constant growth mode or steady growth mode. Are you? Every entrepreneur goes through this like the kind of like dog days where you're trying to like get rolling and get enough money to kind of keep your head above water. I know that there's always growth to be had, but like without giving away too much of your business. It's kind of where are you in that growth phase? Like, are you in a in a place where you're somewhat comfortable? Or are you still like fighting for survival? Like, where are you in that journey? Yeah, I would say that I'm I'm in a comfortable position in that I've definitely been approached with offers to do things, and in many ways, I can be quite selective with the things I participate in. Some of those opportunities are things that are jobs that I would have dreamed of being able to have several years ago before starting Trapital. Things that I didn't think would have been available to me years down the road, but just given the upside and the opportunity, it just doesn't make sense to do those things. So right now it's definitely this mix where I wanna be able to do as much as that I can that makes sense from an interest perspective on a contract basis, but still leaving enough time to be able to help grow Trapital and continue to make sure that it can get to the levels and have the impact it can. I think that for me, there is a real opportunity where the more money that comes in from the content and the business, the ways to generate money that are truly scalable in that type of way, and less of the consulting over time actually could be a, a thing that I think works out a bit more favorably for me. Because 
as lucrative and as great as consulting gigs can be, it still is quite transactional, right? But I'm truly, on the flip side though, I'm truly building a business that has the opportunity to scale and have a bit more reach. And I think there's also an opportunity to be able to open up an investing arm of this. I feel like every, I'm asked quite often, you know, when are you gonna, when, when are you gonna start a fund? I'd love to do this. Capital sounds like a VC fund. Like when can we get in? And for me, I know that it's one of those things where if I made the announcement, I feel fortunate and confident enough that it can generate buzz, but I just don't feel like I'm there yet. So I just know that there's a few steps that need to get there in order for that to happen. And yeah, I'm, I'm definitely bullish on all of that. And I think with that, the more income that comes in, the more things I can do to help beef up things from a content perspective, which then just strengthens everything else moving forward. And I'm, 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 I'm really excited about that. So I think I'm happy that things are at least in a sustainable way right now that I can continue, but you know, it's a fight like anything. And I am definitely, I think if you asked me a year ago or maybe even a year and a half ago, it'd have been like, oh, you know, we'll see. I'm still trying to figure things <laughs> right. out, but no, now at least there is a model that works here and I can be flexible with what makes the most sense to focus on now versus then. And ultimately, there's a path to be able to get things to where I think it can make an even bigger impact than it has so far. Yeah, well, that's 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 dope that you've been able to build to this point too, and it, it also just speaks to like perseverance and grit. Everyone sees the success and they want the they want the the rewards of success and hard work, and they don't understand the years and years of work and grind and grit that you have to put into it to get to that point. So. I'm glad that you're here. It's been a really dope journey to watch. And when you decide to raise that fund, which I know is going to happen, definitely let me know. I, I definitely want to be a part of that fund for sure. It's going to be dope. Um, so, but before I let you get out of here, I have, a, I have a few questions I ask all my guests. And the first of which is, you know, being in this unique position of being as talented as you are and also a black man, inevitably there's going to be you know, the microaggressions and sometimes just like pure aggression and disrespect and whatever. It's just, these are just the things that come our way. It's a part of uh, the blessing and the weight of being a black man. So with that said, I want to ask you, tell me about a time in which someone has gone low and you took the high road and the fact that you took the high road, it actually worked out in your best interest. I can think of one time when I was working at my last job that I had full-time before this, and there was a manager who, although I felt like gave me a lot of advice and suggestions on how I could do things better, I noticed that he had treated me differently than a lot of my peers who did not look like me. And there were enough comments that he had said about things that were unrelated to me, but still gave me a... Uh, pretty clear picture on how he looked at me or how he thought of me. I still remember this time when we were talking about basketball. This was during the time when the Warriors were um, winning that first title run. And he was like, well, you know, what is it about Steph Curry? He just doesn't seem like these other guys in the league. Do you know what I mean? And inside is just like, okay, I know exactly what you mean by that. And that is a problem. And I could choose to tell you about yourself right now right, because right, right. that's frustrating to hear. But I remember finding a way to highlight the fact that 
this person was someone who grew up as a millionaire because his father was an NBA player who mm -hmm. had, you know, done his thing in the league and in many ways almost needed to quickly assess the situation to be like, okay, well, this is a manager that has a lot of control over my career right now. And I want to be able to provide some context, but I know that I can't necessarily go to the level that I would want to just given the context. So I focused a bit more on those types. Uh, I focused a bit more on the things that were a bit more intangible from that perspective. And then I also mentioned Clay Thompson too, because I knew he easily would have been mentioned in the same route. And I was easily right. able to be like, well, Clay Thompson also had a father that was in the NBA. And then I'm also did the comparison is like, well, I think we need to think about those types of things before you try to compare them to someone like a LeBron or a Kevin Durant who have been very vocal about the fact that they grew up in broken and challenged homes throughout their childhood. Mm -hmm. And I think it was able to be communicated in this. Oh, aha. Interesting. Like, you know, I guess I didn't think about it that way perspective even though I'm really thinking some other things about, you know, <laughs> colorism and different things about, you know, who were the quote unquote good black people and who were the ones that make you feel less uncomfortable. I chose not to go that route. I definitely could have. So I've often looked back on that, especially from a workplace perspective as a time where they went low based on what they had said. And I could have also went low, but I chose to go the higher route. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, stories like that are unfortunately so prevalent and, I don't want to get too far into it, but I saw a headline, I think it was yesterday, about the number of black employees, how black employees disproportionately want to remain full-time virtual or part-time virtual. Like we over-index and that desire coming out of the pandemic mm. of wanting to remain full-time virtual or part-time virtual and the hypothesis of it. And like I can say, I didn't get into the full read. I just looked at the synopsis of the article. And it was because we don't want to go back, me in the office, dealing with BS like this. Because it's, <laughs> right, it's right. so pervasive and it's just something we have to deal with other people don't. Um, all right. So next question. You, when you think about your personal definition of success, just in life, like how you, how you evaluate Dan Runcie and when you look yourself in the mirror and like, I'm feeling good about myself, what, what is that bar that you're trying to reach for yourself? No one else has to agree with it. Mm. For me, it's feeling content about the things that I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis and feeling like I feel fulfilled, right? And I think the definition of that has changed over time. There were points where the only thing that gave me fulfillment was the accomplishments that came from either a career perspective or from a fitness or sports or accomplishment perspective in that type of way. And I think now it's come a bit more to the feeling of just being content and at ease and happy with whatever it is that I'm doing, whether it's feeling like I want to sit down on the couch and watch TV and not feel like I need to feel like I'm slacking or doing something else. There's a level of power that I think can come with that. That can be hard, especially as an entrepreneur, when you are largely myself doing everything solo, except for a few contractors, knowing that the buck does stop with you but you are able to feel content to be like, no, I'm going to chill out. I'm going to go do this thing. I'm going to go on a date night with my wife, or I'm going to go just sit down and watch TV when I know I could go in the room and go do some work, but I'm going to do this. And knowing that that overall is going to be better for me and ultimately what I want to do, I think there's a power in that. So that's when I think I feel 
the most, you know, accomplished when mm-hmm. I can feel comfortable in that, whether it is I'm going to work for the next three hours and not feel like interrupted by this, this, or I'm going to be um, locked into chill mode and not feel, yep. you know, pressure to do something else. Yeah, no, I mean, that that is true power and freedom too, right? When you are, when you are your own boss and you've been successful enough to where you could make the calls about your time. It's like, I'm going to unplug for a few hours and I can afford to unplug for a few hours. Or it's Saturday night and I'm going to work for three hours. Like, But having that choice be yours. Um, right. What without sacrificing your financial well-being, I think that that's a very powerful position to be in for sure. Um, Definitely. Next next question, and this, this one and then one more. So the next question is, if you were to describe your journey in one word, what would that word be? It's been fascinating. Mm. It's been fascinating. That's the word. Um, I mean, I know you're looking for one word, but I guess just from a brief descriptor, it's been fascinating both in the impact that Trapple has been able to have, what I've been able to prove to myself from setting goals out there and truly being able to put something in the world that has value and the reach and every all the opportunities that have come through. And I think just some of the personal growth and mindset shift that has came with that. And also just all the things that I've been able to be learned that I'm learning about from my job perspective and being able to integrate all of that. It's been fascinating. Yeah, no, that is perfect. Like what's the one word and then the the meaning behind it? Because I think as we get out and we push beyond our comfort zone, our parameters, a lot of people don't push beyond because they're afraid, right? Mm -hmm. But that's also where the best experiences are. That's where the greatest accomplishments are. That's where the joy and the meaning of life is it's it's out there beyond your your comfort zones so right um yeah i'm i love i love hearing that that answer because it's kind of reminds me to like continue to to push and to to not play things safe and to not be reckless but to push beyond like what it is that you do every single day what it is that you absolutely know for certain like try and push right. beyond that and so lastly before i let you get out of here of all the weight that comes, you know, with with our experience as black men, it's also, in my in my opinion, a blessing and a gift. So I like mm-hmm. to hear from instead of everyone always not everyone, oftentimes conversation gets anchored around our blackness just through the lens of kind of the hate and vitriol that we face everywhere we go. But I like to hear from other black men. What do you love most about being a black man? For me, I love the I love the camaraderie and I love the pride that and the connectedness that I feel like I can have with people, whether it's meeting up with me, you and any of our other friends out here in the Bay or meeting up with Michigan folks. And I can compare that to meeting up with other people that I have friends with in other groups or going and meeting other people for the first time. And even though some of us just haven't met there's like this inherent vibe that does tie all of us from a cultural perspective. And even if you just met someone for the first time, like you could just feel like, okay, like we're in this, right? And not even just like from a struggle perspective, but just from like a feeling of, no, like, you know, like we like we got each other. Even if I never see you again, we got each other. Even if you're right. like a relative and we're getting up, 
we got each other. I mean, I took a flight last week and I actually saw one of the guys on the flight that was on the same flight going there as coming back the next couple of days and we're sitting right next to each other and immediately was like, oh yeah, gave each other daff and then just started like talking <laughs> it up. And it's like little, like little stuff like that sits with me, right? And, or being able to like meet up with friends and feel like there's a connectedness that you haven't been able to truly feel in a while, especially for me, I think sometimes it's great to have these type of things even on Zoom, but it's different when you're there in person. Mm -hmm. And I think I've definitely just missed a lot of that given the pandemic. So being able to have that in the spirit, even things of like knowing that someone's going to make like someone's going to crack a joke on somebody and we're all getting up. Right. Like, I know you and I were in a group thread earlier and like, <laughs> even like that stuff brings me excitement and back to like what it's like when everyone's really getting up in person. That's the stuff that really gives me, you know, that, that, that sense of pride and fulfillment. And that's what I really do love about being black, feeling that culture, that connectedness. And I think a lot of that extends out into like how we all relate with media too, and all the things that are there from a, from a positive perspective. And I think that inspires a lot of the work that I do. So as well, just from that perspective as well. And no, that's what I love about being black. Awesome, man. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed watching Tropical grow and become what it's become. And also thoroughly enjoyed this hour of a conversation. Like I've known you for a long time, but I had no idea like what we were going to really get into. And having known you as long as I have and having watched you build Trapital the way which I've watched, I still learn so much more about Trapital and about you and about this amazing business that you've built from the ground up just in this hour. So I appreciate you taking the time. And now that we're on the back end of this pandemic, you know, I'm vaccinated. I think you're vaccinated. Yeah. We got to We got to get the brothers together, man. It's time to get together in person and, you know, we got to give Max or whomever Tyrell. There, there's someone that we have to give a hard time to. So, uh, <laughs> it's we, probably Dean too. We yeah, gotta give Dean a hard time. <laughs> definitely need to give Dean a hard time. So yeah, man, let's let's uh let's make it happen. But greatly appreciate you coming on here and uh dropping game. And for those of you who um enjoyed what you heard, be sure to follow Trapital on uh Instagram. I know uh Runcy is also on Twitter. Are you under Dan Runcy or are you under Trapital? Yeah, on so on Twitter, I'm under uh, Runcy Dan, and then I'm also uh, Trapital underscore Media on Twitter, on Instagram, it's just Trapital. But yeah, I think the best place, honestly, is the newsletter. That's where that really is the core product. So if you go to Trapital.co, that's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L dot C-O, and you'll sign up for the free newsletter, and you'll get a taste of what uh, Neff and I have been talking about for the past hour. Awesome, man. Well, congratulations, and talk more soon, brother. Thanks, bro. This is an honor. Thanks for having me. Yes. Talk soon, bro.